Welcome to Turn of the Century, a show about history at the turn of the 20th century. I'm Joe Hawthorne, joined today by NYU professor, author, and writer Luis Francia to talk about the Philippines uh, between the late end of the 1800s and early 1900s. Luis and I have spoken a few times before, but this is a special episode because we're recording and releasing in October during Philippine American Heritage Month. So Luis, thank you for joining Talking Today. Glad to be here. I'm going to start off, I'm glad you're here too, I'm going to start off um, like I do with each conversation for the show to ask you what you define as the turn of the 20th century. Well, literally, of course, it's the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th, but figuratively, the turn of the century was also a turn towards possible independence and sovereignty. But somewhere along the line, um, the turn took a backwards turn. For nearly 400 years, Spain controlled the Philippines. But at the end of the 19th century, Filipinos would start to rise up in large numbers and demand sovereignty or independence. Can you tell me about two of the leading Filipino revolutionary or reform groups, the Propaganda and the Katipunan? Yeah, well, they're actually, the propaganda movement was a movement founded and led by the elite, the Ilustrados, the term in Spanish, referring to the educated, mainly male uh, scions of prominent Filipino, Filipino-Spanish families who were able to go abroad to Europe to further their studies. And there they formed this movement uh, to advocate for reforms, not for independence. And on the other hand, the Katipunan was a movement homegrown, completely domestic, and as opposed to the Ilustrado, which was led basically by the upper class. And who were the Katipunan? How were they more radical than the propagandists? The Katipunan was led by the proletariat, by working class figures like Andres Bonifacio. So the Katipunan was, um, in a way, an offshoot of the propaganda movement because one of the architects of the propaganda movement returns to the Philippines, and that, of course, is Jose Rizal. And Jose Rizal uh, lands in Manila in um, 1892, and shortly he forms the, um, you know, La Liga Filipina, which doesn't advocate for independence, but continues the work that they had done in Europe, the propaganda movement, which was to clamor for reform, still keeping. Uh, the Philippines as a colony of Spain, but now with representational rights in the Cortes, which is the Spanish parliament, and to be treated like a province of Spain. So the elites did not necessarily want to cut the apron strings. The Catipuneros, on the other hand, who did not have the privileges of the Ilustrados, wanted complete independence, you know, because they bore the brunt of the abuses uh, from the friar state, you know, and by friar state, I mean that there really was no distinction between the frilocracy and the civil state. And the friars basically were a dominant force up 
until the takeover by the United States. So they were movements that agitated one for reform and the other for independence. And the Spanish uh, didn't want either one. So you mentioned Jose Rizal, who was one of the intellectual symbols of New Philippines, of the propagandists. He actually advocated for reform within the Spanish Empire. But how did Madrid treat him? With Rizal, uh, they put the two together. They basically said, even though Rizal was advocating for reform, he was using that as a disguise for a more sinister motive, which was, you know, to use that as a pretext than to um, draw, to have a move towards complete independence. Uh, and, and, you know, they were out to get him no matter what. The friars hated him because of his novels. So they had him killed. Now, the founder of the Katipunan was Andres Bonifacio, a foreman at the British firm. And he had had some education, but not at the level that the Illustrados had. But he had read Rizal's novels, and he was an ardent admirer of Rizal. And he joined the La Liga Filipina. But once the La Liga Filipina was disbanded uh, because of Rizal's arrest, what Bonifacio did was to convince the remaining members of the La Liga Filipina to form a new organization, the Katipunan. And the Katipunan said, from now on, we would, we will aim for complete independence. Our goal is to establish the Philippines as a sovereign nation. So as the Spanish Empire cracks down on Filipino reformers in the 1890s, how do the Filipino leaders respond? Or a lot of them respond? Basically, they were saying, we're grown up, we're adults. We want to. We want you to leave the nest, okay? Uh, so that's the difference between the um, propaganda movement and the Katipunan. However, there were some members of the propaganda movement who eventually became members of the Katipunan. It, it's not as clear-cut as one would think because you had General Luna, Antonio Luna, who decided when the war broke out between the Philippines and the United States that he would then join the um, revolution. This seems similar in a lot of ways to the American Revolution. You have reformers who are advocating for some solution within the empire. And when the British or the Spanish empire cracks down, you have a little bit more of the radical or hardliners that fight for true independence. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at the American Revolution, there were elements here who wanted to stay within the orbit of Imperial England, you know, and there were uh, Americans born here who fought on the British side. You know, I mean, the classic example being Benedict Arnold. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's that's a good point, that every revolution has elements within the domestic sphere who don't necessarily want to completely secede, you know, 
And if you, actually, if you go further afield, the Commonwealth, you know, the British Commonwealth, it's kind of a keeping some kind of hold on all these countries. And I think it was two weeks ago, I, I read that with the death of the Queen Mother, you know, Elizabeth, there's talk that the Commonwealth might be dissolved. And if that happens, the last ties uh, from the colonial days will be will vanish, you know. So going back to the um, the elites and uh, the proletariat, there was a clear divide, and that manifests itself even when the elite decide. Well, not all of the elite side with the revolutionaries with Aguinaldo. So when the more radical faction, a.k.a. the Katipunin, approached the moderate leader, Jose Rizal, what did Rizal or the moderates tend to respond? Rizal said no for basically two reasons. A, I don't want, we're not yet ready, we don't have enough arms, and I don't want the blood of innocent civilians on our heads. And then B, he said, if you don't get the support of the moneyed class, you won't get enough money for arms, and therefore it will be a bloody uh, conflict, and you may not succeed. So he said, now is not the time. And of course, uh, this greatly disappointed the Katipunan, but they decided to go ahead anyway. But he knew that his um, upper-class peers most likely would not support the revolution against me. And I think it was partly snobbery. You know, why should we let the rabble lead the revolution? So this introduces one of the last people we need to know about for today, President Emilio Aguinaldo. Aguinaldo was the son of a merchant family, but gradually took control of the revolution by winning battles on the ground. But as the revolution goes on, he seems to be open to reform rather than complete independence. And that's one reason that he accepts the offer uh, on the part of the Spanish colonial administration in 1897 to declare a temporary cessation of hostilities the uh, Spanish would give the Katipunan a certain amount of money and they would self-exile in Hong Kong. So one interpretation of that is that Aguinaldo and his cabinet use that as a delaying tactic. They could use the money to buy arms. The uh, other view is that he was basically selling out because there have been questions raised as to where the money went. You know, there's been no clear accounting of how and where and on what the money was spent. That money was supposed to go to the widows and the orphans created by the war. So it's surprising if you're going for complete independence and basically you have the Spanish. You've neutralized the Spanish. You have more men at arms than the Spanish. 
that you would then agree to this kind of truce. And so I, you know, come down um, on the side of those who say that basically Aguinaldo was a reformist because part of the truce, uh, part of the conditions were, you know, we can incorporate the Revolutionary Army into the Spanish Guardia Civil or forces that they had. So there was this um, logical drive on the part of the Spanish to co-opt the revolution. And they succeeded to the extent that the battle ceased, at least those um, headed by Aguinaldo, because we have to remember, it's an archipelago. So there were Katipunan units that refused to heed the call to lay down their arms, and they continued to fight. Okay. Uh, so that, to me, um, was a clear indication that Aguinaldo didn't really want to betray his class interests, you know, and therefore the killing or the assassination of Bonifacio, his main rival, makes sense from his point of view, because Bonifacio, working class, basically didn't want to negotiate with the Spanish in that manner. What he would have wanted was a negotiation for the Spanish to leave the Philippines. So Aguinaldo is super interesting to me because he spends a few years just managing to kind of stick around. He goes into exile in Hong Kong and bides his time as the Spanish get weaker and weaker. As you know, in 1898, America declares war on Spain for mostly separate reasons, but destroys the Spanish Armada in Manila. President Aguinaldo is able to move back into the Philippines and declare a new government somewhat with U.S. support. And then when he declares the Philippines as an independent nation, and I think I raised this in our last conversation, he pays obeisance to the United States, you know, under the guidance of the great humane United States of America, you know, I'm paraphrasing, of course. So you wonder, why would that be in the constitution of an independent country? So he's kind of sending signals, okay? And, yeah, so he tries to have it both ways, to be seen as a revolutionary, but at the same time cut a deal. So this was actually something I was curious about. Do you think that Filipino revolutionaries would have been able to defeat the Spanish without the U.S.? Do you think that uh, local leaders, that revolutionaries had other options? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Spanish were on their last legs. Um, Manila was the uh, the king, you know, again, if this were a chess game. And uh, the Philippine Revolution Army had surrounded Intramuros, which is the heart of Manila, along with the U.S. troops. And Aguinaldo was still uh, trusting the U.S. I mean, he had his doubts, but he still felt how can... I, I would think his thinking went along these lines. How can the U.S.? founded on revolution, turn against us. So 
though I may have my doubts, I'm going to set those aside and trust that they will listen to the better angels of their nature. Yes. So even without the U.S., the Philippines would have succeeded in throwing out the Spanish. And of course, the Spanish didn't want that because of racist uh, reasoning. They said, we've been saying for more than 300 years that the Filipinos, the Indians are inferior to us. It won't look good if we lose to an inferior race. We'd rather surrender to the uh, to white people, uh, the Americans. Of course, I'm phrasing it baldly, but that at heart is what was behind the Spanish decision to surrender Manila to the U.S. after a mock battle. Okay, and so after the U.S. invades Manila, there's a standoff between U.S. colonial forces and Filipino independence fighters. This will lead to a whole other bloody and fascinating war, which we will talk about in other episodes. But moving on from that, and thinking more broadly, I'm curious about how the Filipino perspective shifted right now. How do you think that some Filipinos, some leaders, worked within the system of the U.S.? There were people who were members of the Katipunan and then later on formed the Federalistas and then went on to uh, demand sovereignty. And so that's quite a shift. And one really interesting character was H. Pardo de Tavera. Uh, He was an illustrado who um, had been born in Paris. Oh, no, born in Manila. But his father was exiled to Guam who then went to Paris, where then the son followed and studied in Paris and then returns to the Philippines. And once the uh, Americans win, at first he's he's all sympathetic to the Katipunan aims. But once the U.S. wins, he forms the Federalista Party. And he's one of the founders of a, a newspaper called La Democracia, which is quite pro-American. And the rationale of the Federalistas was that, you know, the Americanos are giving us reforms that we had wanted from the Spanish. You know, because he, the reasoning was that we have no choice with the Katipunan because this Spain refuses to even give us these reforms, which are quite um, reasonable and not at all radical. So we then must secede and declare our independence. But when the U.S. enters, then the Ilustrados, like Pardo de Tavera, sees this um, reasonable accommodation, reasonable from his point of view, because it will keep his and his class's interests intact. And then they say, we will be, we will petition for statehood. Still like they did under the Spanish petition to be treated like a province of Spain, but now it would be a state, you know, kind of like Puerto Rico under the protection of the United States. And later on, 
we can work towards independence. Independence. Barda de Tavera basically is echoing the sentiments of Aguinaldo's, most of Aguinaldo's cabinet members in opposition, of course, to Mabini and General Luna. You know, Luna by now is like saying, no, we need to fight the U.S. as well because that's what we want, complete independence. So yeah, um, the war isn't completely over, but the U.S. now controls Manila, which is the you know the seat of government, and so Pardo de Tavera founds with some others this newspaper, but the Federalistas lack popular support. They have the newspaper, they have money, but the sentiment on the street is overwhelmingly for independence. So then they start to change their tune. And then they finally say, okay, let's go for sovereignty. But they become a party that nobody really pays attention to. You know, um, They've lost the chance to get behind the impulse that's propelling the population towards uh, sovereignty. Okay, so he was a perfect example outside of Mabin, uh, Aguinaldo's cabinet of somebody who tried, like Aguinaldo, to straddle both sides and to strike a compromise. And if we think back to moderate leaders, how do you think the U.S. co-opted symbols like Jose Rizal, who was killed by the Spanish, to help keep control in the Philippines? In terms of Rizal, it wasn't that difficult because he was known for his pacifist views. Uh, in fact, he anticipates Gandhi, you know, who was born later. And so the U.S. promotes him as you know, this perfect uh, representative of the Philippines who's against the taking up of arms. And of course, it's clear what the U.S. is saying. If you have somebody as revered as Jose Rizal refusing to take up arms, then that's a clear signal to the revolutionaries um, in the field to follow his example. I mean, they don't state that, of course, but that's the clear intent to promote uh, Rizal uh, because he was a pacifist, not because he was critical of the ruling dispensation, though that didn't hurt because he was critical of the Spanish. Okay, so that was one. And the second way that they co-opted the elite was with, there was a second commission to study conditions in the Philippines sent by, I think, McKinley. And that was headed by William Taft, who then becomes the first governor general. And Taft uh, invites a number of the illustrados to be part of, uh, to sit in on commission meetings. I'm not sure if they were going to be members of the commission, like uh, Filipino members, but he wanted their input. You know, so the illustrados were saying, look, you know, the U.S. is giving us an opportunity for us to make our voices heard, which we never had um, under the Spanish. 
So he basically, I think Pardo de Tavera was one of the people who was invited uh, along with some other prominent uh, elite uh, members to be part of the commission. So the U.S. was very savvy. You know, the, they knew the grievances that the Filipinos had against the Spanish. And they said, well, we can address some of those. We won't give you independence. Not yet, anyway. So there is always the hint of independence down the road. You know, so they were basically stating what the Federalists were stating. But, you know, the genie of independence was now released from the bottle and there was no way of putting it back. The sentiment was still on the street. No, we want complete independence. So so there were moves to co-op the elite. And um, once the war was over, uh, that paved the way for other elite members to be part of the colonial administration, you know. And the U.S., of course, instituted certain programs like uh, sending deserving students from the Philippines. And this antedates the Fulbright. I don't know if you're familiar with the Fulbright program. Yeah, well, the Fulbright program, you know, um, is an exchange program. Uh, but this antedates, it was to send promising Filipino scholars to the States. They would get an education here supported by the government. Um, they were known as pensionados, which in Spanish literally means pensioners, but in practice it meant they were, they were scholars being sent to study uh, for graduate degrees in the States. In return, they had to return and work. I think for every year spent studying in the States, they had to spend two years as a civil servant. So it was a way of building up the civil service in the Philippines. And this was very different from the Spanish. Um, so they, the, the U.S. used these ways, education, have a say in the civilian administration, uh, to bring in the elites, the educated, and institute free public education, um, which theoretically was true of the Spanish, but under the Spanish, the friars resisted the rule of teaching the Indians Spanish, you know, and that's a critical point in Rizal's novels. He was always going after the friars for their uh, antipathy towards educating the natives. The U.S., on the other hand, you know, very propagandistic, will teach you English, you can come to school, because once you start speaking English, you then are able, are more receptive to ideas from Amer the American way of life and how things should be, okay? So they co-opted through these uh, means, education, a role in civil service, and um, a promise of independence, I think, through, I forget the name of the act, but it was passed 
in the 30s, uh, promising independence in 1946. And I think that is a good transition, um, especially if we're talking about um, education, English, um, and people literally going between the Philippines and America to, um, you know, kind of summarize this all. And the general question I ask at the beginning is, you know, what you define as the turn of the 20th century. And the question at the end is, was that period foundational for both like Filipino history, but also Philippine American history for... Oh, definitely. So go ahead and prove it to me. (laughs) Tell me why it matters today. Well, it matters today um, because with the exchange and the flow between the two countries, but more of a flow from the Philippines to the United States, the migration uh, on a systematic scale begins in 1906. And what that means, and we have to look at not just the political sphere, but the economic and social sphere. Okay, so economically, the Philippines becomes a source of cheap labor. Because looking at the United States, you know, at that time, uh, the manufacturers were saying, hey, we can produce all these products, but we need more markets. That was one factor behind the expansionist drive of the U.S. Not so much for imperial conquest, but really for markets, for products to be, for U.S. products to be sold abroad. So they needed um, cheap labor, particularly the agribusiness in Hawaii and on the West Coast. So the migratory streams from 1906 onwards were really to Hawaii and the West Coast, which is why the uh, communities on the West Coast and in Hawaii are much older in terms of history than the communities on the East Coast, you know, like in New York. So definitely the turn of the century did and continues to affect the composition, the legacy, and the formation of Philippine-American identity. And it's not homogenous because um, once the migrant workers got to the U.S., they found out, yeah, we can work, but we're denied uh, civil liberties. You know, um, they they couldn't vote. They couldn't own land. They couldn't marry white women. And most of the migrants were male. So you had this young, healthy men wanting to settle down and have roots. But the very structure of the U.S. system at that time prevented them or tried to prevent them from setting down roots. But they were able to anyway. And there are a number of critical points. And I think I mentioned this documentary the fall of the I Hotel. Now, that international, the full name is the International Hotel, was really an SRO. And for those of listeners who may not know what that means, it means single room occupancy. And a lot of the old timers, the Manong, the migrant workers, retired and lived in that I Hotel because the rent was cheap. It was $50 a month. And they got a room. 
you know, and it was in Manila town section of San Francisco. So they had their restaurants, their barbershops, their pool halls, community centers there. But then, you know, the I Hotel was demolished because of gentrification. So the West Coast is really a direct, for lack of a better term, beneficiary or not an anti-beneficiary of migratory labor from the Philippines. Now, the migration to the States begins uh, after the loosening of immigration quotas, I think by Lyndon Johnson. Prior to that, I think only 100 Filipinos um, from a certain period to that point could migrate to the to the states once the those restrictions were lifted 20,000 from any country you know the 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 restrict the quotas were uniform so that opened up the floodgates and more immigrants moved to the east coast because this were where the uh, white collar jobs were and you know Personally, that's one reason that my oldest brother uh, moved to New York. You know, he this was, I think, in um, ninth, early 60s. And he was here in New York when the loosening of immigration quotas uh, happened. And since then, the communities on the East Coast have built up. But there's still... Uh, they don't have as much sense as the history of Filipinos in the U.S. as those on the West Coast. So we end intermarriages, okay? Perhaps that's a more tangible uh, proof of the way that the U.S. presence in the Philippines continues to this day. Uh, you had the African-American soldiers intermarrying. You had white U.S. soldiers deciding to stay on. And I know that's a fact because my maternal grandfather was a, in the Army, U.S. Army. He's in the Philippines uh, for the Philippine-American War. And he stays and he marries my uh, Filipina grandmother. And, you know, my mother and her sister are born, and so are we. So if you're looking for physical, tangible representation, then the descendants of the intermarriages are great testaments to that. Right. I mean, you could have started with that of why why does the time period matter? Because you exist. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's um, a pretty good place to wrap it up on here. But before I let you go, um, considering this will be probably posted just at the tail end of um, Philippine American Heritage Month. Is there anything that you want to wrap up with, tell listeners, encourage listeners to do? Well, yeah, there's a whole host of events uh celebrating or commemorating depending on what the event is focusing on um, different aspects of the Philippine American uh, history here uh, and 
there's a an online magazine called Positively Filipino. They've been having webinars on, uh, you know, Filipino American identity. I think they had one called the Bridge Generation between uh, Filipinos and Americans and the migrant laborers who came here. I think that's been recorded. And if one goes to Positively Filipino, uh, they should be able to access, you know, uh, not only the articles, but probably the recordings of the different webinars that they've done in relation to Philippine American history. And then there's also a series of documentaries online. Uh, it's called Daang Docu. D, D as in David, double A and G. And then Docu, D-O-K-Y-U. Docu is Taglish for documentary. It's a hundred documentaries on the Philippine experience. And if you go and just Google it, I think it will be, it's been free, I think, beginning yesterday. And it's different aspects of, um, you know, the Philippine experience. And I'm sure a lot of it will deal with the relationship uh, directly or indirectly with the United States. Wonderful. Okay. Well, so I'll wrap up. I encourage listeners to subscribe, review, um, and of course, get all of, of Luis's books as well while you're at it. Uh, but thank you so much, Luis. It was great to talk. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, great. Talk you to too. you again. Take care. <laughs>